The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is the final episode in a four-part series. Please listen to Episode 1, September 4th, 1998, Episode 2, Lost Girl, and Episode 3, The Wolves, before listening to Episode 4. This is the fall line. I'm not going to forget either. We're going to continue anything we find out that may be a possible lead. We're going to follow it. You know, we're going to contact GBI and and, uh, whoever else needs to be involved, and we're going to follow everything regardless of how far-fetched it seems. Um, But it's just a reminder for me every day I come in my office, you know, my eyes, you know, look at her face. And um, and like I said, I don't have to have these to, to keep it fresh on my mind, but I just I just happened to have them in my office, and he did as well. And we um, are going to continue. We'll never give up. And, um, you know, what we can do that we haven't done, um, I don't know if there's that much more other than wait on another lead or, or follow up. September 4th, 2019, will be the 21st anniversary of Shaikimia Pate's disappearance. She will be 30 years old a month later, in October. Over the last two decades, there have been sparks of hope, tips that might have led to her. Veronica Pate, her mother, doesn't have the full details on all of them. She told us that she's asked investigators to hold off on telling her at least until a lead has been thoroughly explored. The potential and then the letdown are emotionally exhausting. In fact, in at least one case, the family wasn't aware of a lead until Rotondo, Veronica's sister, was called into a Michigan police station. It was 2012, and she had to leave work and rush over in a panic. When she arrived, she was surprised to see Dooley County investigator Randy Lamberth, now Sheriff Craig Peavy, and GBI agent Ben Collins, all waiting for her. They'd come to Michigan because of a photo, one from Rotondo's own social media account. Someone in Unadella had seen a picture of a girl that looked familiar, and they called the sheriff. We spoke to both investigator Randy Lamberth and Rotondo herself about the experience. Randy walked us through that initial tip, which was sent in from a local who came straight to him, and the decision to head to Michigan. She contacted me, and I started looking at the Facebook photos, and they were very, very similar. And we started doing comparisons here. Uh, I got in contact with the local uh, agent, again, that was handling it through GBI, and we reviewed the pictures as well. Uh, we felt that these photos were significant enough that uh, we go to Atlanta to his home office and meet with their sketch artist uh, and have her to review them. Uh, 
from the photos that we were able to retrieve and take with us, uh, these photos were reviewed by her in which at that point in time, she says, I do not believe it is the same person, but they are too close to not to rule out. So with her suggestion to that, uh, Sheriff Peavy, Agent Ben Collins, and myself, we made a trip to Detroit, Michigan. Uh, upon there, we made contact with the state police there in Detroit, uh, advised him what we had. They made arrangements to go out with us to the location of uh, where this subject lived, and we made contact, or he did, uh, with them and requested that they travel down to his office, uh, which was basically in the outskirts of Detroit. It wasn't right downtown Detroit. Comparisons was done, and we were there to follow up and check out, uh, which it was confirmed there was an individual there, uh, but it was not Shasha. It was a family member uh, who looked very, very close uh, in everything, but everything was documented, and uh, basically she was ruled out, uh, and they was still appreciative at this some uh, four years, a little over later, after Shasha had become missing, that uh, we traveled to Detroit to follow this up. As previously mentioned, law enforcement had a rule of not discussing leads with the family until after they'd been explored. This included Rotondo, Veronica's sister, who was in Detroit and had no idea what was happening. Here, she describes how events unfolded from her perspective. Somebody, somebody here pulled her picture off my Facebook page and said that I knew where she was at all the time because that was her. And they came and they came to Michigan and. Um, went to my cousin's house, had her whole house surrounded, and asked for her daughter. And was like, we need to take your daughter to the police station because we need to ask her some questions. She might have seen something. Um, but they wouldn't tell her nothing about what it was. So once my cousin Tanya got to the police station, they asked, they was asking a question like, how did she know me? How did she know my sister? Has she ever been around any kids that she don't remember now since she done got big that she was around when she was little? That no longer here no more. And of course she said yes, because she had a baby brother who passed away. That she no longer see any long anymore. So they uh they were like they did a DNA test with her. But her grandmother and our father is brothers and sisters. So it, it could be a lookalike there. And then they told her they were asking that she not to get in touch with me and if she could, could she call me and have me to come down to the police station, to be her at the police station. No other lead has been as strong, though all have been followed. Potential suspects, including those known to the family, have been tailed or even staked out, just to be sure that they hadn't taken Shy away with them to raise her as their own. One question that has come up for us and the family is whether hospitals, especially in the areas where she had connections, might have been checked. When we traveled to the Region 13 GBI office and spoke with Assistant Special Agent in Charge Todd Crosby, he discussed the paths that have been pursued. The FBI actually went to Michigan. Um, they um, did surveillance there, and they did uh, check the residents, the grandparents' residence in Michigan, and also they checked the hospitals while they were there. Whenever you get into trying to get information from a hospital, that is whenever you run into HIPAA 
problems and uh, everybody's medical history now is protected by that. Uh, and it also protects it if it happened in 1970, that HIPAA also protects it now. So search warrants would be needed, uh, court orders would be needed to get that kind of information. And there's just not enough probable cause to get either one of uh, a search warrant or um, a court order for that type of information. Uh, if we could build enough probable cause, and, and what I mean by that is if we could find where she was sent to a hospital or even have any indication that we could substantiate she was sent to a hospital, that would give us enough probable cause to maybe get a search warrant to go over and look at the records at the at different local hospitals or even hospitals in Michigan. But that probable cause, we just have not found enough of probable cause to go get that type of paperwork yet. Then there have been the strange tips that come up with every case, the ones with no grounding in reality, submitted by people who have become fixated on a detail or a person or a place. These can include tips from self-proclaimed psychics, but can also be a darker effect of citizen web sleuthing or even a personal vendetta. Rotondo told us that the Dooley County Sheriff's Office has access to the official missing person's social media accounts for Shykemia. This includes the one run by the family, the Searching for Shy Shy Facebook page. This means that Randy Lamberth can intercept the occasional strange communications, the obsessive conspiracy-based messages, quickly. Sometimes he can do it before the family even has to see them. Other times, though, these so-called tipsters find their personal pages. When they seek out Shykemia's family, they usually head to Veronica's profile first. Then she sees their messages. Often, she wishes that she hadn't. These communications run the gamut from vague to kind to frightening. Sometimes she gets tips that are so specific that she takes them to the authorities. They tell her not to share any personal information. Often, it's best that she not respond at all. But based on what Veronica told us, we dug into a few different tips and ended up finding rabbit holes of online obsession. Sometimes it's a tip from a person who has a pet theory they're sure police have dismissed too quickly. A suspect, maybe, or a location that should be explored again. We get plenty of those, and so do the families of the missing, who often don't know how deep online obsession can go. If you're at all familiar with the Mara Murray or Asha Degree cases, you'll know just what we mean. Those sorts of messages come into Shaikimia Pate's family. But there are people who are more deeply obsessed. Sometimes not with a missing child, but with the person or persons who they believe committed the abduction or murder. In Shaikimia's case, there's someone like this. Someone spreading a very particular and complex theory via different online identities. Someone who comments on missing person threads, on the Charlie Project, on local news articles featuring various missing people, and who claims a single woman has kidnapped many children, some of whom we've even featured on our show. This obsession runs very deep. Doxing. Naming minors and accusing them of being missing children. In one case, even disrupting the online obituary and legacies dedicated to a teenager who died in a car crash. These online obsessions, these crusades, they aren't tips. They aren't leads. They're attacks. Damaging everyone in their wake and pulling in the families of missing children, often states or even countries away, into their wake. 
If you truly think, truly think you have information concerning a cold case, don't contact a family, don't contact a podcast or Nancy Grace. Go to law enforcement. Parents like Veronica Pate have enough to deal with. Since Shaikimia's disappearance, Veronica's own journey has been long and often difficult. Shaikimia's father, Chris Foster, passed away in 2018. Thankfully, law enforcement got DNA samples from Chris and Veronica before Chris's death, but they all live with the knowledge that he didn't find his daughter. Shaikimia's family hoped that somehow, some way, she might appear at her father's funeral. They had the same hope in 2006 when Chris's father, Robert Foster, died. But there were no signs of her. In 21 years, Veronica's grief hasn't dissipated. It has simply changed shape. During those first months, it was largely a fear of being alone, of being outside even. She did what she needed to be done for her children and the case, but otherwise, she felt frozen. She leaned on her sister Regina, who came and stayed with her in the duplex on Crumpler Avenue. In this interview passage, Veronica talks with her sisters about that time. The her she refers to is her sister Regina. For two years, I didn't go outside after, afterwards because I, I was scared. I was scared something was going to happen to me. I sat in a recliner by my door. She had to go back to work because she had they, her job that her took off, but then she had to see about me and her mama at the same time because right after Shy got kidnapped, her mama died like that November, and she had to take care of me. Then she had to do for her mama. Then she had to help her sister and brothers and her children, and then her job. I was scared for her to go home. I didn't want her to never leave me. I slept on her arm with my leg crossed through hers because I didn't want her to leave me. And the only way I could sleep was to put her sitting there. And if she moved, I got up. And then when she had to go back to work, I was lost because I didn't know what to do without her. And then I had another friend. They would come. And then she got killed in March. That was another toll on me. And I, I ain't know what to do. And then I had this cousin that lived next door. So when my kids went to school and she went to work, I said I was scared of being I was scared of being alone. Then one of her nephews, well our nephew, he started staying with me. And he would be there every day. But as soon as he le- he left me one night, about 12 30, I couldn't find him. And I was just crying. She had to get out of her bed and come and get me. Cause I, I was in the house by myself. And I couldn't be alone. It took me 10 years to learn how to live alone. When it was time for Laswanda, Veronica's oldest daughter, to attend college, Veronica felt a new kind of panic. She understood the dangers in the world in a way few parents do. If Shaikimia could vanish from her own street, around people who knew her and loved her, how could her other children ever be safe? She called their schools every day just to check on them to be sure that they were there. But she couldn't do that for a college student. Swanna graduated six months after it happened. And then she started going to school in Atlanta. So every Monday I would take her to Atlanta to, to her auntie's house. And then on Fridays I would pick her up. And one Monday I carried her back to school. She said, Mom, I just don't want to go to school with her no more. I was so glad and I was so relieved because I couldn't sleep while she was gone. And when she said that, I ain't... Question, I said, well, you need to go to school. I was like, okay, let's turn around. We turned around and we came back home. And then that January, she started going to Fort Valley State. But 
that was like that December. I was so, I was so, because she had started school in July the 8th, right after she graduated. She went to Atlanta, and I was like, oh my God. When Rotondo, Veronica's sister, moved back to Georgia a few years ago, she knew she needed to take an active role in the search for Shikimia. Her sister was emotionally and spiritually exhausted, though she would still do any interview, participate in any event. The family needed someone who could look at the case with fresh eyes and bring energy to their efforts to attract media attention. That's when Rotondo began to consider a 5K, a walk in Unadilla, beginning on Crumpler Avenue, to honor Shikimia and to raise awareness. She was inspired by Nick Mech's Rock One Sock campaign, which encourages people to wear one sock to attract attention to the organization and to missing children all over the United States. Back here in 2013, um, after, after I moved down to, um, to Ronald Robbins, I never knew what, what all we could do. And I just started thinking, like, Lord, what could I do to make it where not just for shy, but for other kids, other families, letting it be known that these kids are still missing and that we're still searching for them, that even if the family is not searching, someone is searching for these kids because you still feel alone when you don't know nobody else personally that goes through this. And if you're not getting invited to, like, the Emma Alert seminars and stuff like that, you don't know who else kids is missing. It just fell on my heart to, if I could get shot out there, then I could get another kid out there, then I could get another kid out there. If we could do a walk for shy, then we could add another kid. We could add all of the kids in one state. Then eventually we could make it go national. We lost money um, every year that we have did it. We have pretty much lost money, whereas we do get a couple donations, like from the mayor and from the sheriff's department. But um, myself and my husband, we put in money. Uh, my mom put in money. We just put in what we need to try to get to make sure that we could get a successful walk. So we end up being in the red because we end up having to order up more shirts. Um, then people tell us, hey, we want to get a shirt. I need this size shirt. So we end up get, making these shirts. And then the people don't, buy, don't purchase the shirts. So we end up losing money because of that. Can you talk about your vision for future walks? Future walks? Oh, God. Like, if I could just get it where... We, if we could get it, I mean, it don't have to be as big as the breast cancer awareness walk in five years, but eventually I want it to be like that. Um, if we could get it where we could have multiple families, just families that are missing, friends of the missing, because every everybody where a kid came up missing from, somebody knew those kids. Someone knew those fam- that family. Some of the family may have passed on. We don't know. We are asking no one to give blood by walking. We asked just to come up, show up, walk. We even got to the point where I was like, oh, like the last one we did, I was like, let's not even ask for, um, let's not ask for donations. If people want to donate, they donate. Let's not ask for a registration fee. Let's try to get people to come and be there. Because I was like, the more bodies there, I think the greater the reward of people actually showing up going to be. 
Yeah, so and that you was just my main want, thing. You just want like more engagement. It just tear at my heart to know that these kids is missing. The only and the only way you can find out these kids is missing is if it's on local television or if you just doing a search on missing on the missing kids foundation. That's the only way you know these kids are missing. And they're not just missing like overnight. It's kids that's been missing for 30 years. It's kids been missing for 40 years. Even though they, they we're not looking at them as being kids any longer because of the time frame. But to all of us, they still kids because that's the last image that we have. And I'm sorry for crying. Rotondo's nonstop work has made an impact. But without true media support, it won't raise the national profile of Shaikimia's case. When we first met Rotundo, she took us to a little clearing on Crumpler Avenue, the street where Shaikimia vanished. She set up folding tables and covered them, front, sides, and bottom, with posters of missing people. She carries these in her car. She imagines that, eventually, she can connect with all of their families. When her project is fully assembled, there are scores of faces. Jenna Van Eldren, Justin Gaines, Danette and Jeanette Millbrook, Monica Bennett, Michael Bennett, the list goes on. Georgia is waiting for a case with a happy ending. Hey listeners, this is a new and updated portion of this episode, which is no doubt clear to you because it sounds so different. Originally, we had an interview portion here with true crime writer Billy Jensen, who explained how geo-targeting social media ads can be useful in some cases. Keep in mind this series was released in the summer of 2019. We don't want to disrupt Shaikimia's series with a lengthy explanation, but the summary is this. As Rolling Stone reported, in the late spring and summer of 2022, a number of sexual misconduct allegations against Billy Jensen, including at least one involving workplace harassment, became public. Because of those allegations, we will not re-air our conversation with Billy Jensen, and we will be replacing the original episode with this new updated one in our archives. Instead, we'll provide you with our own experience using geotargeting to help cold cases. After all, it's been four years since we began using geotargeting techniques to help raise the profile of cases and to encourage tips and leads, and we can explain how those techniques work to you now. In every cold case we cover, we spend anywhere from 50 to several hundred dollars, it just depends on location, to target information regarding cases so that locals see the posts about the cases in their feeds. Since we larger cover older cases, we concentrate on Facebook and Instagram, but TikTok is also a great place to reach audiences too. There are two ways to geotarget for a case. You can create a page dedicated to that case, Something that you should only do if you have direct permission of the family involved, as we did in Shaikimia's case. We created a separate page for her that advertised her reward, provided information about her case, and then boosted different posts about her, with links to episodes, her GBI reward, and her information page, and also relevant news articles. Now, boosting, that simply means paying a fee to Meta so that the posts appear, just like other ads in users' feeds. When I pay for a boost, I'm able to choose how to target the audience. I can choose, say, true crime podcast as an interest or whatever I like. I can pick age range, for instance. But 
Our preference is to choose region. Because Unadilla is a small place, we also chose surrounding cities like Perry, and we had a good target audience for the promoted post about Shikimia. A good example of a post would be one that led with her photo, and a title that said something like, Missing Child, $25,000 Reward. Did you see Shikimia on September 4th, 1998? For the first year or so, I made each case its own page, but that is a lot to keep up with. Eventually, I figured out that I could boost posts under the podcast account, and that was easier to manage, and I could title them in just the same kind of ways. I can set up a reward post with a featured photo and the same sorts of questions or statements, and the audience paid less attention to who was posting and more attention to the information. However, If you are a family and not posting from a business account, you may find it easier to simply set up a page for your loved one and then choose to boost individual posts. Anyone can do this. You just need to have PayPal or a credit card tied to the account to pay the fees. Law enforcement agencies and other medical legal agencies can also geotarget posts to reach towns, counties, or even specific neighborhoods. Recently, we had major success with geotargeting in the case of Leo Jane Doe, a case we covered in our present-day work of 2023. We were able to reach hundreds of people in the area of Alabama that the unidentified woman's family was said to have come from, and it led to many tips for Metro Nashville PD, who has her case. In fact, it was so successful that we're now working on more unidentified persons coverage with the same detective who brought us her case. Any person, podcast, or organization can geolocate a post to boost a case. While we want to stress, again, that you should not create a page for a known person without the consent of either their family or law enforcement, boosting a single post from your business page to encourage people to call a tip line, to advertise a reward, or to simply make people aware of a case is a great way to use social media to encourage tips and leads in a targeted fashion. Now, back to our original episode on Shikimia. There's always someone who has seen something. The trick is in reaching them and in convincing them that their tips are worthwhile and that they can be submitted anonymously. In fact, it's possible to submit an anonymous tip and receive a reward. When we spoke with Sheriff Craig Peavy, former GBI agent Ben Collins, and Sheriff's Investigator Lamberth, they each stressed the importance of coming forward. All three are convinced that someone from the Unadilla area, someone who might be listening right now, can crack Shaikimia's case. That person might have seen Shaikimia with a familiar person, someone unthreatening, from the neighborhood, possibly a man between 20 and 30, and most likely in a car. Maybe someone who offered Shaikimia a ride to the game, almost certainly someone known to her family, who Shaikimia would trust. All of those little moments, any of those little moments, could be key. And so, with that in mind, Sheriff Peavy wanted us to share the following message with you. Anybody can call and give us any information. Um, we will follow it. Uh, we can, regardless of if what they heard or, or what they know, somebody knows something. And we, you know, 
just about everything to happen. Somebody knows something, they just scared to come forward. Um, you know, please come forward with information, whether uh, it's, if it's anonymous, if it's something that we can, you know, check out and verify, um, you know, I say you don't even have to leave a name. You don't have to leave a contact number. Just give us some information. Randy Lamberth, the investigator who has participated in every event Shikimia's family has organized, echoes the sheriff's sentiment. If there was anybody in the area at that time that uh, may not have been interviewed by law enforcement, please, if you have any information, you know, give us a contact. You may think the information that you have is minute, but it could be a big piece of the puzzle for us. Uh, and that's what this is, is a puzzle, and it's putting everything together of how this case falls, falls in and is completed. Uh, but if you were in the area during that time and you saw or heard of anything, uh, please just give us a call and let us talk with you. And uh, if you've got any benefit, maybe it can help. Our interest at that time, and it still is, is locating Shasha. Uh, the people that were on the street, we already knew who they were and why they were there. Uh, they was doing uh, their business on the street, and we had our business there as well. Uh, we had no interest at that point in time, and still do not, if it will lead to anything that can locate Shasha for us as to what they were doing there. Uh, they can contact us anonymous. They can contact the GBI. They've got a tip line, I believe, and the FBI has got a tip line that they can call and leave the information and wouldn't even have to talk to anybody local. Ben Collins, the former GBI agent first assigned to the case, also hopes that with the passing of time, people might be more willing to speak with law enforcement. In these old cases, after years have gone by, a lot of times people think, that we have information, maybe they saw something or they heard something during that time frame and they, they didn't call and tell us at that time because they didn't think it was important or they or they thought we knew about it. And to me, the biggest thing is that these people can remember anything around the time frame that Shaquemia went missing. If they would call the Dooley County Sheriff's Office or the GBI office in Perry and just say, hey, I just want to make sure you have this information or you know this as far as what was going on during that time frame. That could be a great help. In the meantime, Shaikimia's family won't stop. Her sister, Laswanda, designs T-shirts. Her aunt, Rotondo, organizes the walks and runs the social media. Randy Lamberth and the GBI agents assigned to her case appear on public radio or do interviews with BuzzFeed News. They speak to people like us again and again, all in hopes that the next time will be the charm. Rotondo says the commitment is always there because for them, Shaikimia is ever-present. You know how, like, grown people say, like, a little kid is their best little friend? That's how it, was, that's how it seemed like, like, we were just, in a, uh, it's like our spirits were just intertwined with each other. She was one of those kids. To know her is to straight love her because that's what she gave off. She gave off love. She didn't give off no bad energy. It was all good energy. If you have any information regarding the whereabouts of Shikimia Pate, you may report them, even anonymously, to the GBI or the Dooley County Sheriff's Office. Call 1-800-597-TIPS or 
229-645-0930. There is a $20,000 reward in her case. Special thanks to Angie Dodd for her generous support. Our research assistants are Haley Gray, Kim Fritz, and Brooke Floyd. Content advisors are Brandy C. Williams and Liv Fallon. Music is by RJR. Allison McCallum assisted with administrative duties. And a special thanks to our new producer, Maura Curry, who also engineered and mastered these episodes. Find our merch in the Exactly Right Pod Swag store. A portion of our proceeds are donated to support the work of the DNA Doe Project. We'll be back with updates and three new cases. We hope you'll join us then. Thank you.